reading. Let's open up to Judges chapter 17. We'll be in chapters 17 and 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use and even keep the black or blue pew Bible in front of you. Perhaps uh, no piece of American history has been studied as much as that of chattel slavery. Ivy League schools have created and endowed entire departments for the study of the peculiar institution. Entire libraries could be filled with books, articles, and dissertations that have been written about American slavery. Entire organizations are built on and funded for the sole purpose of educating the, perp- uh, the public on the history of American chattel slavery. The history of American slavery, it's well studied, but it's not always studied in the same way. Some students of history like to study at the 10,000 foot level. They like to zoom all the way out to try to see the grand sweeping narrative of history. One might, for example, study slavery in America by studying mm, the Civil War or the transatlantic slave trade. They might zoom in just a little bit closer and examine the, the life, legacy, policies, and personal beliefs of key figures from the days of slavery. Abraham Lincoln, William Lloyd Garrison, Henry Clay, Frederick Douglass. Or one might choose to explore movements like that of the abolitionists, or seminal events like the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter, or key documents such as the Missouri Compromise or the Emancipation Proclamation. And yet, such studies could feel cold, analytical, disconnected from the human experience. Even now, as I look up out at the room, I see some of you are already disconnected from me. Some students of history care less about the meta-analysis and more about the lived experience of those who went through the events. So what was life like for the average white southerner in the days of chattel slavery? What did it feel like, look like, smell like to live in the slave quarters of a southern plantation? What was it like for northern abolitionists to have to wrangle with violent mobs on the speaker circuit as they advocated for the slaves' freedom in those days? A student who asks these kinds of questions in history will be drawn less to comprehensive textbooks and more to books like the autobiography of Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington. Some people, when it comes to history, they want to know the how and the why of it all. But other students of history want more. They want to feel the blisters on the slave's hand. They want to be able to hear the sorrow in the voice of the slave's song as they cry out in the cotton fields. They want to sense the anxious beating of the slave's heart as he travels towards freedom on the Underground Railroad. So, which is better? The comprehensive 10,000-foot meta-analysis view of history? Or the boots on the ground, zoomed all the way in, lived experience, study of history? Well, the truth is, I think we need both. We have to be able to understand history through the lens of all the way out and all the way in. And in the book of Judges, we get just that. In chapters 1 and 2, we received a rapid overview of the conquest of the land. Then in Chapters 3 through 16, we examined the history of Israel through the lens of the 12 judges, kind of 10,000 feet way up in the sky, just looking at the history of Israel through each one of her leaders. But now, as we move out of the judges and into chapters 17 and 18, the author zooms all the way in, and he gives us a look into the life of what it must have been like to be in Israel in the days of the judges. He gives us an experience boots on the ground, 
a memoir from a soldier in the trenches experience of what life was like for an Israelite in the days of the judges. In this morning's text, we're going to encounter four characters, each character demonstrating in its own way what life was like for Israel in the days of the judges. So our plan for this morning is pretty simple. For the first half of the sermon, we're going to do exegesis. We're just going to ask, what is the text saying to us? And then for the second half of the sermon, we're going to do application. What does this text mean for our lives today? And friends, it means a lot. So let me pray, and then we will dive in. God, we sang just uh, a few minutes ago, speak, O Lord. And then you did. We opened your word, and you, the high king of heaven, spoke to us. God, we pray that you would help your words to be clear to us. Sin creates static in the lines of our communication. We read your word, but we don't fully comprehend it. But we want to, God. We want for your word to mean something to us. So God, tell us about who you are. Tell us about what you've done to save us in love. Tell us about how we are supposed to live as sinners redeemed in this fallen world. We ask all of this knowing that you delight, delight to give good gifts to your children. We are your children. So we pray to you, our Father in heaven, do us good. Amen. So let's, let's start just by walking through the text. We're going to begin by reading chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. As the text opens, we encounter a man from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Micah. And the narrator wastes no time letting us know exactly the kind of man with whom we are dealing. Micah is a thief, the worst kind of thief, the kind of thief that goes pilfering his mother's purse while she's asleep. Not that I've ever done anything like that. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Micah has stolen money from his mother, and it's not a little bit of money. This isn't taking 20 bucks and going to the arcade. This is hacking into her bank account and taking her savings. 1,100 pieces of silver. His mother, not at all pleased to find that her money is missing, calls down a curse on the thief, whoever he may be. Micah, who just happens to be an earshot of the curse as it is uttered, confesses to being the thief. He returns the money to his dear mother. Right out of the gate, we see two big issues in the life of Micah. First, Micah breaks the fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother. He breaks that by stealing from her. And he breaks the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. We might be slightly encouraged by Micah's willingness to return the stolen money to his mother, but it seems like Micah's less concerned about breaking God's law and coming under the curse of God for sin, and, and, and he's, he's more concerned with coming under his mother's curse, kind of a, a superstitious curse. So not only is Micah the kind of man that would steal money from his mother, he's also the kind of man who is superstitious. Not a little stitious, superstitious. Not the best first impression. But maybe, as we look at the life of our second character, Micah's mother, we'll have a a better first impression of her. So let's meet her in verses 3 through 5. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and a household god, excuse me, and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became the priest. Micah's mother is so overjoyed to get her money back 
that in a, a moment of spontaneity, she dedicates it to the Lord, all 1,100 pieces. Kind of. There are two big issues here with Micah's mother. The first issue in verse 3 is that Micah's mother dedicates this money to the Lord in the form of a carved and metal image. There's two different ways this could be interpreted. Either she got a carved wooden image and then melted down the silver and then laid it over the wood and so it's like a carved and metal. Or there's like this other metal image, but she paid for a carved image to be built as well. Either way, you got wood, you got metal. Both of them are idols. They're sinful. They're pagan. They're wrong. Okay, this is not good. It seems like the thought was nice, right? Oh, I've got my money back and I want to dedicate it to the Lord. But the way that she dedicates this money to the Lord, this act of worship is expressly forbidden by God. God's first commandment of the Ten Commandments, do not worship any other gods. God's second commandment, do not worship me in a way that I have not prescribed. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Same language from the book of Judges, a carved image. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 16, beware lest you act corruptly. By making a carved image. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Deuteronomy 27, 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen. The Gentiles carved images for their gods. But the God of Israel was abundantly clear when he was communicating with his people. He said, I am not like the gods of other nations. You cannot represent me by an image. A craftsman, even a master craftsman, cannot capture who I am in a piece of wood or in a metal shrine. Therefore, any and all images are off limits. So in this supposed act of worship, Micah's mother is... Well, she's just doing what seems right to her, what seems good in the moment. And yet she has unknowingly adopted and accepted a form of worship from the pagan nations around her. She has, she has tried to adopt the water of worship from the nations and mix it with the oil of worship from God. But the only problem is that water and oil do not mix. What Micah's mother is doing is out of a sincere heart, and yet she is sincerely wrong. The second issue we see with Micah's mother is that she withholds most of the money that she dedicates to the Lord. She dedicated 1,100 pieces of silver, but when the time came, she had all that silver, all 1,100 pieces. She was getting ready to hand it over to the idol maker. She was like, well, maybe I'll just give 1,000 pieces. Well, he doesn't need 1,000. Maybe 900. Ah, he didn't. 700, 600, 500. Pretty soon, she just gives 200 and then keeps 900, if my math is right, for herself. What's really mind-boggling here is that the Lord in no way commanded Micah's mother to give this money. This was an obligation she put on herself, and yet it was an obligation that she could not keep. Think about how this applies to you, friend. Can we keep God's law? Is that possible? No. We're not even capable of living up to our own moral standards much less the holy and righteous standards of our God. Now, let's move on to verse 5. Let's just read that one more time. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So what does Micah do with this new idol that his mother crafted and kind of gifted to him as a reward for being a halfway decent son? He takes it and he puts it with his other household gods, his other idols. He adds it to his collection, and that collection coming together is called a shrine. We're also told about an ephod. I don't know if you remember from earlier in the book of Judges, but an ephod, it could be a number of different things, but it's most likely kind of like a, a doll clothes version of priestly garments. And they would put them on their idols as they sat there in the shrine, and they would use these ephods as a way to kind of try to discern the will of the Lord. And then finally, to make his shrine official, 
Micah dedicates his own son as a priest. There are three big issues here in this section. Number one, Micah is trying to establish a center of worship away from the tabernacle. And in doing so, Micah is acting like a rich man who doesn't want to have to go to church. So what does he do? He has a compound. He's got a big house. He's got a lot of, a lot of money. He, he builds a church on his own private property. But instead of building a true church, he builds a worship center, a place where all gods can be worshipped. He, he fills the shrine with a bunch of religious symbols, the Buddha, the crescent moon, and of course a cross. And the cross is right there in the middle, mind you, most prominently displayed. And then he hires his own pastor to hold religious services. Who is the pastor? Well, you've got to keep it in the family. He hires a son. And his son holds these religious services for the family. This is, of course, bad. There is no tabernacle in Ephraim, but Micah builds his own. The second issue here is that Micah takes this carved image supposedly to worship Yahweh, which it should not be used to worship Yahweh, but that's what its ostensible purpose is, and he puts it among the other household gods. This is literally a display of syncretism, trying to take the worship of the one true God and combine it, make it work with worship of false gods, like taking the pieces of the puzzle that don't quite fit, but then just kind of jamming them together, you know, oh, I did it. This is bad. (laughs) If those coexist bumper stickers existed in the days of Micah, he would have had one, boom, right on the back of his donkey. The third issue here is that Micah ordains his son to be his priest. But Micah's son is not a Levite. And according to God's law, the only person who can be a priest is a Levite. So far, so bad. But then Micah's fortunes, well, they appear to change. In verses 7 through 9, we're introduced to the Levite. Look there. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Okay, so this is the Levite. He's traveling. He wants to find somewhere to live, maybe where he can offer his services. Let's look at verses 10 through 12 now. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with a man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. So, it seems like Micah's on the come up. His shrine may have lacked some legitimacy at first. Your son's the priest, really? But now he's got a bona fide Levite from the tribe of Judah, mind you, which is kind of a big deal. You guys get that. And he's, this is, you're going to be our priest. Okay, we're not too shabby, but there are a couple of issues here as well. First, there's something strange about the wording that Micah uses when he talks about this Levite serving his household, he says, will you be a father to me? Will you be a father? This is odd, very odd, because in verse 7, the Levite is called a young man. And then in verse 11, we're told that Micah treats the priest like one of his sons. So which is it? Is the priest a father figure? Or is he one of his sons? Well, the point is kind of lost on us, but it would not have been lost on the original audience. In the book of Numbers, the Lord restricts the priesthood to those aged 25 and above. So all those child preachers you see on YouTube, that's a no-go. 25 and above for the priests. The reason why the priests were called fathers is because they were expected to have just a little bit of age and just a little bit of wisdom, enough time on this earth to be able to give 
good, godly counsel to those who were under their care, like a father would. It seems likely then that the author is trying to show us that Micah is so eager to appoint a bona fide priest that he rejects the numbers requirement, ages 25 and above, and he's willing to appoint this very young man as a priest just so that he can have a Levite priest. You remember, he kind of already did something similar. He didn't have a Levite priest around in the first place, so he just said, eeny, meeny, miny, okay, one of my sons will do it. He just wanted to have a priest, and he rejected the law of God to have a priest. Now he wants to have a Levite priest, but this Levite doesn't quite fit. He doesn't, he's not quite according to the law, but he's, ah, I gotta have a Levite priest, so he makes this young man his priest. The second issue here is that Micah seems to believe in an ancient version of the prosperity gospel. Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite priest. You see why Micah wants this Levite priest so bad? He has this mechanistic view of God, this quid pro quo view of God, this view of God that says, if I can get the recipe just right, God will bless me. This is an inversion of true worship. True worship says God has already blessed me, now I'm going to give myself to you. He's saying, if I can give myself to you in just the right way, maybe you will bless me. And he thinks the way to get that blessing is by having a true blue Levite. Hmm. So, will this priest bring blessing to the household of Micah? Will this priest do his job? and lead these people according to God's word. Well, that remains to be seen. As we move on from the character of Micah, I think it's worth stopping just for a moment and briefly meditating on his life and worship. In Micah, we find a man that maybe looks like men that you know, a, a man who looks very pious, a man who seems to care about God, a man who Yes, he's got his flaws, he stole some money, but he gave it back, and now look at him. He wants his home to be a place of worship. He's a man willing to invest, seriously invest, in spiritual matters. He says, listen, I'll give you money, I'll give you clothes, I'll take care of your room and board, as long as you're here helping me worship God. Unfortunately, he's ordering his worship entirely according to what he thinks is right, rather than what God has said is right which means that his worship is entirely wrong. More on that later. And so now we come to chapter 18. And we meet the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan is the fourth character in this morning's story. And rather than walking through all of 18, I'm going to kind of give you the cliff notes, okay? So just try to stay with me as I summarize the story of the Danites. <coughs> the tribe of Dan <coughs> is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribe of Dan was assigned a piece of land in the promised land by Joshua before they went into the land. The tribe of Dan, upon entering the land, failed to eradicate the Amorites from the land, and therefore they were forced to live in the, the hills of Israel. Now, as we get into chapter 18 in verse 2, we find that the tribe of Dan, once again, chapter 18, verse 2, excuse me, the tribe of Dan needs land. They didn't get their land. They didn't do their job. Now they're like, we don't have any land. What are we going to do? So they send out a crew of five spies to explore the land to see if there are any weak people with any good land for the taking. Next, in verses 3 through 6, while the five spies are spying, they encounter a priest, the Levite that Micah hired in his household. Somehow they know him. They recognized his voice. How did they know him? We're not told. Maybe they went to high school together. But they knew this priest, and as they're talking, the priest tells the spies, oh yeah, I work for Micah, and he pays me this much, and he's got this really cool shrine with all these idols. And then the spies go, hey, you're a priest, you know God, what do you think, is God going to bless us on our journey? The priest says, the eyes of the Lord are upon you, whatever that means. Then the Danites, they go back, and they say, hey, we found it, man. We found just the right spot. It's good land, and these people are so dumb and so weak. 
we've got it. Verses 11 through 13, the Danites get a small army, a very small army together, and they get ready to go take the land. In verses 15 through 17, on their way to take the land, the Danites make a quick pit stop back by Micah's house. Why are they there? To rob him of all of his religious paraphernalia. In verse 18, upon arriving at Micah's house, the Levite confronts the Danite soldiers. He's like, whoa, what are you guys doing? Who told you you could take this stuff? You're trying to steal the shrine. The Danites respond to the priests by saying, shut up. Shut your mouth. Do what you're told. Oh, and by the way, you're going to come and be our priest now. In verse 21, the Danites get greedy. They don't stop with just the shrine. They take all the little ones, all the livestock, and the goods. In verses 22 through 26, Micah's people chase the Danite soldiers. They're like, you can't do this to us. But then they back down when they realize that they're outmanned and outgunned. In verses 27 through 29, the Danites go to Laish. They kill everyone. They burn the city to the ground. And then finally, in verse 31, after they've rebuilt the city as their own, the city of Dan, they set up Micah's shrine as a center of worship. There's a lot for us to see here. Let's begin with the priest. The first thing we need to see about the priest is that he's a charlatan. He's a charlatan. He either is speaking so vaguely, the eyes of the Lord are upon you, as to kind of leave it up to the Danites to interpret that however they wish, which, by the way, is how a lot of false prophets work. Turn on TBN or CBN or whatever you would look at now on YouTube to watch false prophets. And that's the way that they speak, just kind of vague. Is there someone in the room whose name starts with a C? Is there anyone here who's experienced any health issues lately? You see what I'm saying? That's the way that false prophets speak. And this Levite, he doesn't want to disappoint The eyes of the Lord are upon you. Either that or he's just, he's outright lying. Because there's no way that the Lord would be blessing the Danites in this endeavor. For starters, when the Danites inquire of God and they say, hey, uh, you talk to God for us, they don't even use his covenant name. They don't even say Yahweh. They say Elohim, which may not mean much to us because we don't speak Hebrew, but it's the generic name for God, you know? It's like they're referencing God with like a lowercase g. It's very obvious that they don't know him because they can't use his covenant name. They are so disconnected from God that they have forgotten the name of the Lord. Secondly, we know that God wouldn't bless the Danites in this endeavor because he already gave land to the tribe of Dan. He told them upon entering the promised land, this is where your land will be. The Danites were disobedient and didn't get that land. And so now they're trying to go steal land from helpless, unsuspecting, peaceful people. God's not going to bless that. There's something else for us to see about the priests here. Look at verse 19 of chapter 18. And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man? or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel. Friends, we know that the priest has come to see the full corruption of the Danites. We saw that in verse 18, right? The Danites show up, they're trying to steal the shrine of Micah, and the priest begins his encounter with them by confronting them, rebuking them. What are you doing? You can't take this. It doesn't belong to you. But then the Danites push back. First of all, with a very good argument, shut up, right? Secondly, and listen, hey man, you don't don't want to die over this, right? You could come with us. You want to stay working in just one, one man's house? You want to be a priest to one family? What future is there in that? You could come with us, the Danites. You could be a priest to an entire tribe, You could be the leader of an entire clan. You could be the spiritual head of many households, not just one household. Hard to resist. More money, more prominence, more power, more respect. Now look at verse 20. And the priest's heart was glad. 
He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. His heart was glad like Adam and Eve, beholding the fruit in the garden. The Levite beholds the prospect of a bigger, more prominent, better, well-funded ministry, and he finds it pleasing to his eyes. He delights in the prospect of this new opportunity so much that he packs up the shrine with his own two hands. The text says that his heart was glad. His heart should have been broken. His heart was far from God. Now let's consider the Danites themselves. As we've already seen, the Danites are far from the God of Israel. They are so far that they cannot even use His covenant name. They are so far from God that they refuse to fight for the land allotted to them by Joshua and instead choose to steal land from a peaceful and unsuspecting people. They are so far from God that they plunder the house of Micah on their way to plundering the land of Laish, like the crusaders who ravaged Constantinople on the way to Jerusalem. They are so far from God that they set up Micah's shrine in their new city because they foolishly believed that this stolen shrine with these false gods gave them victory over the people of Laish. They're so far from God that verse 30 tells us that even the lineage of Moses has been corrupted by their idolatry. Look at verse 30. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Moses' grandson and even Moses' great-grandson are now serving as priests in an idol shrine. Moses would be rolling over in his grave if he knew that upon entering into the promised land, his grandsons would be given over to the false gods of the nations. This is how corrupt the Danites are. Always remember this, friends. The first generation gets the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. And the third generation loses the gospel. So there you have it. A boots-on-the-ground view of the life of Israel in the days of the judges. As seen through four characters, Micah, Micah's mother, the priest, and the Danites. But we're not done yet. There's, there's one verse in this morning's text that kind of serves as the peanut butter and jelly between the two pieces of bread. It kind of it holds the whole thing together. It's the glue of the text. If you understand this verse, then you understand everything else that's happening. And it's in chapter 17, verse 6. Turn back there with me. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What the author is telling us here, friends, as he inserts this parenthetical note into the narrative is that Israel has rejected Yahweh as her king. Which means that Israel just does whatever she thinks is right in her own eyes. You see, that's what a king does. The king says, this is right, you should do this. Yahweh was Israel's king. Israel has rejected Yahweh. And without a king to tell them what to do, they just do whatever feels right. What they think is best is actually the worst. What they think is right is actually wrong. What they think is righteous is actually evil. That's what it means to do what is right in your own eyes. You see another phrase very commonly in the book of Judges, and it's kind of like the photo negative to this phrase. So over here you have, they did what was right in their own eyes. On the photo negative side, it's they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just Let's do a quick perusal. Turn back with me to Judges chapter 2. Verse 11. Notice the eyes of the people, eyes of the Lord. 2 verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now just flip one page over, chapter 3, verse 7. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just go a little bit down to verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to chapter 6, verse 1. I love the sound of the, the pages of our Bibles turning. It's the sound of obedience. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Go to chapter 17. Verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Here's what I want us to see with our eyes this morning. Fallen man, left to his own devices, will always do whatever seems right in his own eyes. But because his eyes are blinded by sin, his vision will be morally corrupted. What seems right to fallen man will always, slight exception, even a broken clock is right twice a day. But by and large, what seems right to man is always evil in the sight of the Lord. Friends, God's vision is pristine in clarity. His eyes are full of the light of righteousness. The Lord never sees anything ethically askew. His moral vision is never blurry. His perception of what is right and wrong is always precise and accurate. God reads all the way down to the bottom of the moral eye chart. By the way, the eye chart that he created. While we, when we look at it, can barely see the big E. We have to scoot all the way up and squint as hard as we can to try to make out the big E at the top of God's moral eye chart. But friends, it's not as if God has left his sinful people to wander around blind in this fallen world, sort of pawing at the darkness, groping for a path of righteousness through this jungle of iniquity. No, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of love is a God who speaks. He communicates, and when he called his people Israel, he was not silent towards them. He spoke to them clearly, carefully, consistently. He repeated himself. That's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is. Deutero namas, the second giving of the law. I said it to you once, but man, you are hard-headed. So just to be careful, right before we go into the promised land, let's review this one more time. This is the way that the God of the Bible speaks to us as people. He told the people of Israel as they went into the promised land, do this and don't do that. Worship me like this. Do not, under any circumstances, worship me like that. Do not treat each other like this, but rather treat each other like that. But God's people forgot his word. They relegated his word. They rejected his word. And rather than being guided by his word so that they could prosper in the land, they became guided by their own sinful hearts, which led to their destruction over and over and over again. Did you see, as we walk through those verses, it says, and again, and again, and again, and again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did you know that there's not one single sin in Judges 17 and 18 that is not specifically addressed in God's word? We don't have time to go through them all this morning. I'll just do five. Micah's theft. Do not steal. Exodus 20:15. Micah's dishonoring of his mother. Do not dishonor your mother. Exodus 20:12. 12. Uh, Micah making a carved image. Do not 
make a carved, can't make it up. Exodus 20, verse 4, ordaining a young priest, 25 and over, Numbers chapter 8, verse 24, do not worship idols, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, the biggest rule of them all. And we can just go on and on. Every single sin in this morning's text is the result of Israel choosing to listen to their own hearts rather than listening to God's word, to do what seems right in their own eyes rather than to do what God has already says, uh, what God has already said is right in his word. So, for the rest of our time together, I want us to consider the why question. I want us to do some heart work. I want us to ask why it is that God's people who have been loved by God and communicated to by God and who have God's word choose to reject God's word and do what seems right in their own eyes. There are a thousand reasons, but we're going to focus on three. The first reason is an ignorance of Scripture, an ignorance of God's word. Turn back to Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, i.e., they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Why didn't they know? God told them to to tell them, Deuteronomy 6, you shall train your children diligently. You shall remind them of these things. They didn't do that. They didn't disciple the next generation. And so the people forgot. And the result is that Israel is left in ignorance of God's word. And, and, and being ignorant of God's word is kind of like getting behind in math class. If you, if you get behind enough, man, you're just, you're clawing and scraping to try to catch back up. You really got to stay there the whole time. You can't let it get away from you. Friends, many Christians today fall into this same category, the category of the ignorant Christian. And by the way, when I say ignorant, uh, I don't mean, I'm not using that as an epithet. Ignorant just means lack of knowledge, Right? That's why I'm calling this ignorant Christian. So consider the Christian who maybe grew up in a Christian home. I could do this even harder. Christian home, right? Where they were never really taught the word, you know? They just grew up in a home where their mom and dad said that they were Christians, but they were never discipled. The Bible was never read. Prayers were never prayed. They never went to a healthy church. The things of the Lord were never talked about unless maybe on Easter or Christmas, Maybe they went to church on Sundays, unless there was a game on, then you can't miss the game, obviously. Or unless there was sports practice, you can't miss, come on, you, my kid's going to make it one day. We've got to go to the football game instead of church. Sports last this long, eternity lasts this long, but let's move on. The extent of their knowledge of the gospel is something like, Jesus died for my sins, and that's about it. Or consider maybe the baby Christian. The baby Christian could be a newly saved believer. You're ignorant just because you haven't been around that long. I think about some members of our church, newly saved. Glad you're here. You don't know a whole lot, and you'll be a lot wiser if you know that you don't know a whole lot. Come here and learn. But an infant Christian, a baby Christian, could also be what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Those who have been Christians for a very long time, decades, but who have never gone from milk to meat because they've never been discipled. You can be 50 years old and be a baby Christian. These ignorant Christians are not unintelligent, but they are lacking in knowledge of the Word. These ignorant Christians, all of them would, if they're genuine Christians, very much like to do what is pleasing in God's sight, but they just don't know what is pleasing in God's sight because they've never been taught the will of God from the Word of God. The ignorant Christian has through osmosis been discipled to think about the world and God and themselves more from the world than from the Word. And so the ignorant Christian very often just does what's right in his or her own eyes. The ignorant Christian will, for example, view marriage lightly and divorce casually. God's Word says that he hates divorce, 
The ignorant Christian maybe doesn't love it, but is kind of okay with it. A respectable sin, maybe. The ignorant Christian will perhaps see children as a burden and an inconvenience, something that will get in the way of the good life instead of something that God says adds to the good life. The ignorant Christian just assumes that God has nothing to say about, well, anything other than how to get saved. The ignorant Christian just assumes that God's Word doesn't have anything to say about MMA, birth control, swearing, the local church, cosmetic surgery, worship, social media, fashion, entertainment, financial stewardship, calling and vocation, debt, pornography, masturbation, abortion, war, politics, spanking children, education, personal health, authority and submission. And we could just go on and on and on. That's not to say that the ignorant Christian doesn't believe any Christian thing or any, doesn't hold any Christian opinion about any of the aforementioned items, because we do live in a world that's kind of downstream from Christianity, and a lot of our moral intuitions have been shaped by the church and by the Bible, and even a broken clock is right twice a day. But the point is, is that the ignorant Christian is just constantly doing what's right in his own eyes just because he doesn't know any better. Friend, if you're here and you feel like that's you, don't be ashamed. Raise your hand if you are a member of this church and you feel like you spent a considerable amount of your time as a Christian not really knowing what God's word has to say about how you're supposed to live your Christian life. If that's you, do not be embarrassed. Do what's right. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a healthy church. And by a healthy church, I mean a church that regularly teaches and applies God's word to your life, not in a superficial way, but in a deep and meaningful way. And I want you to join that church, and I want you to show up at that church every single time they gather and the Word is opened. I want you to be there on Sundays. I want you to be there on Wednesdays. If somebody invites you to be a part of a book study or a Bible study, I want you to be there. I want you to ask someone to disciple you. I want you to be built up in the Word. That is, of course, if you no longer want to be the ignorant Christian. Now, the second reason why God's people do what is right in their own eyes is because they don't believe in something called the sufficiency of Scripture. We'll talk about, I'll give you a kind of a definition here in a minute. But for now, I just want you to know that I'm going to call this Christian the insufficient Christian because they do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. The insufficient Christian is somewhat trained in doctrine, believes the gospel, a shallow understanding of it maybe, and is in many ways faithful to the clear commands of Scripture, okay? But so often the insufficient Christian just assumes that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about all kinds of things that the Bible actually has a lot to say about. You can see this in worship leaders who just assume that God doesn't care about the lyrics and the songs that we sing or uh, what instruments we play at what volume or whether the lights are on or off as we worship together or... You can just go on. You can see this in churches who don't care if you have one service or two, one campus or ten, whether the pastor preaches expositionally or topically, practice meaningful membership or don't. You see this in some quarters of evangelicalism that have fired the theologian and replaced him with historians and social scientists. You can see this in some so-called Christian counseling services that lean more on the theories of Freud and Jung to help us solve our problems than the gospel of Jesus Christ in the epistles of the New Testament. You can see this in the ministries that say that all methods of evangelism are good as long as the gospel is being preached, even though the Bible specifically says that there's a way that you can preach the gospel that empties the cross of all of its power. You can see this in pastors who spend more time consulting flowcharts than God's word, who study stand-up comedians rather than God's Word, who read business books about how the church is supposed to be built rather than God's Word. You can see this in Christians who say, God told me, rather than God's Word says. Listen to the Apostle Paul speaking about the sufficiency of Scripture. He says the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be, listen to this modifier, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If there's a good work that God is calling you to and you want to be equipped to do it and you're looking anywhere outside of the Bible for your main source of sufficiency to be able to do that, you're looking in the wrong place. God's Word is thoroughly sufficient to equip you for every good work. Friends, the ignorant Christian, he doesn't really know what to do. The insufficient Christian, he wants to do good works for God, but he just doesn't know that God's Word contains all that he could ever need to be able to do those good works in a way that's actually pleasing to the Lord. The insufficient just assumes that whatever good work he tries to do and whatever way that he tries to do it will be pleasing to the Lord. Let me illustrate. Sometimes, sometimes, I want to help out around the house. I want to be a good husband, you know. I want to do good work to please my wife. This is my spiritual act of worship to you. I might help with the laundry. I might put the kids to bed. I might load the dishwasher. I have no clue how my wife wants the dishwasher to be loaded. So I do whatever seems right in my own eyes, which is, of course, an abomination before the eyes of my lovely wife. Now, imagine that my wife got tired of me being bad at it, (laughs) and she creates a binder for me full of how-to instructions for every chore in the house, and maybe the instructions aren't even all that specific, but rather they just kind of give broad principles that aim to aid me in doing these chores. Now, what if I receive that binder, and instead of carefully consulting it because I love my wife and want to please her and do it the way that she told me she wants it done, Before I load the dishwasher, what if I just open the binder, flip through the pages, kind of casually skim? Is there anything in here that's supposed to make me feel good today? And then I just slam it shut and say, ah, nothing in here about how to load the dishwasher in a way that's pleasing to my wife. That would be silly. And yet that's exactly what Israel is doing in this morning's text. And that is very often how Christians treat God's Word. We act like God's Word only tells us what we need to be saved, not what we need to be sanctified. Like it only tells us what we need to get to heaven and nothing at all with what we need to do to please the Lord here and now. We act like the Bible only tells us that we need to worship and pretend like it doesn't tell us how we need to worship in a way that is pleasing to the God that we are worshiping. Friends, if God is up there and he is real and he calls us to worship him and he's given us a book, you better believe that he has told us how he wants to be worshiped. And if we love him, we must consult his word. We have to understand that everyone, everyone is looking somewhere to find the answers to all of life's questions, even if they don't realize it. And those who don't think that God's word is sufficient will inevitably look to the world or they'll look within their heart and they will end up doing that which is displeasing to God. Or to use the word of judges, that which is evil in his sight. The third thing I want us to see is that we reject Scripture. As God's people, we do what's right in our own eyes because we just outright reject Scripture. I know that I'm preaching a long sermon. Thank you guys for staying locked in with me. I assure you, whatever's happening right now is more important than what's waiting for you when we leave this building. Now, you might be thinking, Sean, God's people, they just can't outright reject Scripture, right? That's just not a category. Well, kind of. But people who profess to belong to God can and do regularly reject the plain truths of Scripture even as they claim to believe believe in and depend on the Bible. It's happening right now, this very morning. Churches in our city claiming to believe the Bible, depend on the Bible, and yet utterly rejecting the Bible. I'll give you some examples. Some rejection of Scripture is partial and superficial. So let me start with the so-called conservative church. 
I could talk about the Baptist congregation down the road that refuses to practice church discipline, which the Bible clearly commands, or refuses to have elders in the church, which the Bible clearly commands. We could consider the feel-good, seeker-sensitive church down the road that carefully, oh so carefully, sidesteps the subject of God's wrath and the doctrine of hell because if they talk about that stuff, people aren't going to come. There's not going to be as many butts on the seats. We can't talk about the hard stuff right away. We've got to get them in first, and then we can talk about it, but then they never get around to talking about it. What you win them with is what you win them to. Then there's uh, other rejection of Scripture is more obvious. Consider the churches that affirm homosexual attraction, identity, and lifestyle, even though the Lord has said in His Word abundantly, clearly, consistently that this is an abomination. These churches accept all of the above in both the membership and the leadership. Consider the various churches that have female pastors or the church that affirms ethically sourced pornography. Guys, I could just keep going. I don't want to keep going. You see what I'm saying, though? Just an outright rejection of God's word. We could dig into church history, examining the Arians who rejected the divinity of Christ, the Gnostics who rejected the humanity of Christ, the Marcionites who rejected literally two-thirds of the Bible because they thought the God of the Old Testament was evil. Moving up to the Middle Ages of church history, we could examine the Roman Catholic Church, who utterly rejected Scripture for tradition. We could talk about the mystics who rejected Scripture for inner sensations. We could talk about some of the radical reformers who rejected Scripture for direct revelation. Moving up to the more recent past, we could talk about liberal Christians of the Enlightenment era who claimed to believe the Bible but then tried to taxidermy it like a dead animal. Oh, yes, we believe this. And then they strip it of all its vital organs and try to replace it with fluff. We could hit closer to home. Consider the so-called Christians in Alabama. 150 years ago, right here in our state, who supported the wicked institution of chattel slavery. And friends, you better believe, I'm not saying that for bonus points with woke Christians. I'm saying it because it's the God's honest truth. Right here in our own state, people who claim the name of Jesus out of one side of their mouth would then turn and curse their fellow, fellow image bearers out of the other. If you want to know what it might have been like to be a true worshiper of Yahweh in the, the days of judges when everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes and no one was really adhering to the word of God, this description of what it would have been like to be a Christian in the days of Southern religion, excuse me, in the days of slavery, uh, let me just read this excerpt for you. This is from a former slave. He says, I hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cow skin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioner's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of the pious master. Revivals of religion and revivals in the slave trade go hand in hand. The slave prison and the church stand near to each other. The clinking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalms and solemn prayers in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit, in return, covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other, devils dressed in angels' robes, 
and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Friends, this is what it looks like to claim the name of God, but then utterly reject his word and do whatever you think is right in your own eyes. Brothers and sisters of Sixth Avenue, we have to realize that all three of these kinds of Christians exist at one level or another in all of our hearts. We are all the ignorant Christian. Why? Because we don't know God's word the way that we should. We have it here, a gift from God. He's spoken to us. But man, that Facebook feed, Instagram, it just keeps calling me. We all, in some sense, struggle to believe that Scripture is sufficient for our lives. We may say that we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but then when something difficult in life happens, what do we do? Do we pray and open God's Word? Or do we go to Google and try to find the answer? Do we call a friend? Even go to our pastor, who hopefully, if he's a good pastor, will point us to a word. But are we trusting in our pastor or are we trusting in our word? What, what do we trust in? Is God's word sufficient? And finally, we all, in one way or another, reject the plain truth of Scripture. Not normally, but let it get in the way of one of our pet sins. Then it'll be right out the window. We'll just skip right over that in our Bibles. In light of this reality in our own hearts, we must be vigilant. We must be on guard. We have to recognize that our eyes will always, 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 always drift away from the Lord into evil. And so we must be vigilant to bring them back to God's word. Our ignorance of Scripture, our inability to trust in Scripture, our rejection of Scripture will be the ruin of us if we are not careful. Careful, Our marriages will fail. Our children will go wayward. Our addictions will overcome us. Our churches will go liberal. Our depression will cripple us. Our anxiety will consume us. Our affections for God will grow cold and begin to disappear. God will seem distant to us. We will perhaps not even be able to say his covenant name. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Our faith will begin to crumble. Our Christian life will be crippled. All because we've looked into our own hearts rather than at the word of God. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking of the same phenomenon but in his own days, he asks this question. He says, Behold, They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? And the answer, of course, is none. Now, there's there's one more thing I want us to understand this morning before we close. These four characters in the story of Judges 17 and 18, they have not just rejected God's word. They have rejected God. God's word is how God communicates himself to his people. Therefore, to reject God's word is to reject God himself. And this, friends, is, of course, the essence of all sin and rebellion. This is why anyone and everyone does what is right in his own eyes, because ultimately we reject God. God is not enough for us. Celebrities entertain us, but God can't keep our attention. Authors stimulate us intellectually, but God can barely move the needle. Art may move us to tears, but God uh, sometimes moves us to boredom. Nature stuns us with her beauty, but God strikes us as mundane. Social media influencers, TED Talk speakers, politicians, they can keep our rapt attention. But we struggle to close our eyes and pray and commune with God for longer than two minutes. This is the essence of sin. We reject God because we do not know him or love him. Pastor and theologian John Piper says it like this. He asks, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. 
the truth of God, not sought, the wisdom of God, not esteemed, the beauty of God, not treasured, the goodness of God, not savored, the faithfulness of God, not trusted, the commandments of God, not obeyed, the justice of God, not respected, the wrath of God, not feared, the grace of God, not cherished, the presence of God, not prized, the person of God, not loved. Now, friends, what I want us to do this morning is an honest self-assessment. I want us to go back through that and just ask ourselves, honestly, do we honor the glory of God? Do we reverence the holy of God? Do you admire the greatness of God? Do you praise the power of God? Do you, yes, you, not your neighbor, not your your aunt who you wish was here to hear this sermon because she's so messed up, do you? believe these things? Do you seek the truth of God? Do you esteem the wisdom of God? Do you treasure the beauty of God? Do you savor the goodness of God? Do you trust in the faithfulness of God? Do you obey the commandments of God? Do you respect the justice of God? Do you fear the wrath of God? Do you cherish the grace of God? Do you prize like Moses who said, I will not go to the land unless you're with me. Do you cherish the presence of God above all else? Do you love God? I am not naive, friends. I know that it's common for us on Sunday mornings, even in a healthy church, to come in and just kind of go through the motions, you know? Okay, prayer of confession, Fine, yes, I agree in general. I'm a sinner. It's time to confess. But brothers and sisters, I need every single member of our church this morning to understand that we are these four characters in the book of Judges. Yes, we are saved. We have been redeemed. But we still see in this word a picture of ourselves. God is holding his holy law up before our eyes to convict us of sin and to remind us just how much we need a Savior. And the good news of the gospel is is that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sins and to to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. So I'm going to invite my brother Michael Wall to come now and lead us in a prayer of confession.